Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yes. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Nick Rossi back again, let's talk about a little bit of business. What do you say? First things first, Broadbeck Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder, they're knife makers who made a machine for knife makers, metal workers, woodworkers. It doesn't matter. They have attachments and they have, it's got flexibility. It goes horizontal, vertical. It's a great intuitive machine. And if you go to broadbeckironworks.com, you can check out all they have. They have packages. And you say, what's a package? Well, they sell different attachments that not only will fit their machines, but it'll retrofit into your machine. If you got a chassis, you need some attachments, go check out what they got. And if you put in uh, Knife Talk 200, you're going to get $200 off any of their grinder packages. And they have that on the website. They also have a sharpening system that's tight. They also have a service grinder and a leather sewing machine. And if you use Knife Talk 100, you're going to get $100 off of those. Give it a shot. Uh, Broadbeck Ironworks, they're great. They're good guys. I had them on the show. We had, they have a great story. Definitely go listen to the, uh, Ryan and Vince's story. It's, uh, it's very good, and I appreciate their support. Next is Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To find your next heat treat oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. I have known these guys for a long time. Spence and his family are fantastic. I actually just recently had a thermal couple go out. He explained thermocouplers what reads the temperature in your kiln, and they go in relays to the computer, and then, it, you know, they talk back and forth, and they can, you know, using stainless steel, they can high heat, it can, you know, that can last forever. So he taught me, talked me through it. Their customer service was super easy, super fantastic. I love the people at Even Heat. Spence is outstanding, and you should definitely, without question, go check out evenheat-kiln.com. And if you follow Knife Talk, if you follow Knife Talk. You can't. There are distributors that Knife Talk has. They're going to give you seventy-five dollars off free shipping United States. So even heat, you did it again. Love my even heats. Um, thank you so much. Next is Axe Wax. Axe Wax All Natural Food Safe Wax for your Axe. I know what you're saying. There's everybody's got Axe Waxes out these days, but Axe Wax has been doing it for a long time. They have a great All Natural Food Safe Wax that I've been using for my wood handles. Uh, for a lot of culinary knives, steak knives, it finishes up great. It smells great. I know some people have used it in their hair. I know people have used it in their leather. I know one guy who used it in his Andrew Alexander put it on his lips, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what to tell you, but if you go to axwax.us, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off all of your axwax. And if you go to UKKnifesupplies.com in the UK, that's Toby Morrell. He's going to take FULLBLAST10. If you're in the EU, 
KnifeMaterial.at, he's going to take Full Blast 10. You're in Australia, you got two choices, Gamaco and my next sponsor, NordicEdge.com. They'll all take Axe Wax, uh, Full Blast 10 for 10% off your Axe Wax. So thank you once again, Axe Wax. Well, that brings me to Nordic Edge. Nordic Edge is in the heart of Australia. They make pro tools for knife makers. They make a, the original file guide, uh, one of the original file guides with screw-on carbides made with mo- non-magnetic stainless steel, never rust, or in the steel dust won't stick to it, giving the knife maker the edge since 2015. Uh, they sent me one of their file guides. I've been using it now. I love this file guide. It's got it's there. It's just it's they're great. They're terrific. And if you're not a knife maker and you're in Australia and you're th- thinking about it, they have lots of kits. They have kits so you can get uh, you can get a knife blank, you can get some scales, get the glue, all the stuff you're going to need, and you can make yourself a knife. Why not? Give it a try. Uh, they have knife making supplies too, abrasives, grinders, toolings, kits, parts, hammers, piles of other stuff that's going to get you up and running. From seasoned vets to beginners, you'll never know. Uh, for seasoned vets to beginners who've never made a knife before, get a kit with a heat-treated and ground blade. They're also, back in stock, is the Big Mert File Guide. You remember Bert Tanso? He's been on the show for a long time. He's an awesome knife maker, great guy. And he designed a, um, a file guide with the guys at uh, Nordic Edge. It's called the Big Mert, and they are now at Knife kits.com in atlanta you can get that file guide it's a bigger file guide it's it's heavy duty just like mert so go check out nordic edge nordic edge they also sell stuff through uh maritime knife supply and uh good guys really good guys i'm appreciative of i've had nothing but nice messages from bjorn and 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 uh, and sausage man sausage man forge at nordic underscore edge on instagram go check out nordic edge thank you nordic edge which leads me into Maritime Knife Supply. Lawrence Lake is, he's unbelievable. More time, MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca or MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. Everything for your knife-making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils, anything else to get you started or resupplied, including Axe Wax. They're in Canada, and they're going to ship with ease anywhere. I don't know how they ship in the United States as easy as they do. That's not my problem. I mean, that, that he honestly, he does what he does. He, Lawrence knows what he's doing. You can take advantage of the exchange rate, and they have lots of great steel selections. One of the other things about Lawrence is he's very intuitive and involved with the knife making community. So he kind of he makes knives. He kind of once knows what you're going to need, and then he is also taking suggestions. So if there's something you need, and you think you should he should have it on board. Go reach out to him, but they're, uh, he's unbelievable. He's got the uh, the knife-making book by Laren Thomas, Knife Engineering. He's got all the TR Maker stuff. He, he's, a, he's a dynamite guy, so go check out what, they're got, what they got at Maritime Knife Supply. Thank you very much, Lawrence. You are the man. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for you sent me some belts. They're awesome. Next is Trojan Horse Forge for their Trojan Horse Forge makes the stable rail knife finishing vice. This thing is nuts. This is a great vice and it's not just for handles you a lot of people think you know knife finishing vice ah, i just i just put you know i just took a two by four and a clamp and i put it you know i put the blade on there and i can hand sand the blade or i'll just put it you know in the soft the jaws when i have to finish the handle well this thing is everything there's a plate that bolts onto the side it's covered in rubber you can hand sand your blade you can hand sand your blade with the handle on it you can hand sand the blade without the handle on it you can hand sand an integral bolster it moves around to adjust to the kind of knife profile you have let's say you got a kukri that thing's curved over well how are you going to support it well you can curve the you can move some of the bolts around and you can have a flat surface with the knife finishing vise from from Trojan Horse Forge stable rail um, it's dynamite, and if you go to 
TrojanHorseForge.com and check out what they have. They have stuff in stock in batches. They also have payment plans available. So go check out what they have. They did a really nice fundraiser for Jason Knight after his fire, and uh, I, they're, they're terrific guys, and I really appreciate their support. Uh, Trojan Horse Forge is awesome. Go check them out. And last but certainly not least, is Total Boat. Total Boat, baby. Total Boat makes paints, primers, polishing compounds, and all sorts of epoxies, two-part epoxies you're making. Let's say you're going to make a, 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 a one of them river tables. you got to get yourself some pourable resin. Get yourself some of that Total Boat. They they make it. They, this stuff is to keep boats afloat. I mean, isn't, that's not good enough for you. I don't know what else is. They It's for boaters and DIYers who they understand. Total Boat understands that you need your projects to go smoothly. That's why they're consistently finding ways to make their original products better, easier to use, more sustainable, and less expensive. They even tinker tinker with the packaging from time to time to make it more user-friendly. Real-world know-how is what separates them from the giant chemical conglomerates and sets their stuff apart. I've been using their uh, high-performance two-part epoxy. I just glued up 20 knives, uh, and I use their their two-part epoxy, and I really, really like it very much. It's really easy to use. The, The pump system is very intuitive. Uh, it's, and it isn't just like you do one pump from the hardener and one pump from the resin and all of a sudden you end up with like a half a quart of stuff. You can do one pump, one pump, and that's going to give you enough for a knife. It's great. And there's a lot of people using it. I know Keith Decent, Derek from Malden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Duresta, he's shoving all sorts of dead animals in his two-part epoxy and making sculpture with it. So go to TotalBoat.com and put in the promo code FULLBLAST10 for 10% off all of your Total Boat. Total boat, baby. All right. That is that. I want to thank my next guest who's been on the show before. He's unbelievable. He is the gold standard of teaching knife making and bladesmithing in the United States. And it's an honor to have Nick Rossi here. Nick, how are you? Well, I'm doing really good. And uh, thank you so much for having me back on. Glad to be back. Anytime. You have an open door policy. Oh, thanks, man. I have a story to tell you. This is a true story. This is not a bullshit story. It's a true story. So back in the day, I was back in like, I think 2005, I started working at the Center for Metal Arts. And then we were not doing any knife making whatsoever. It was all like blacksmithing, forging, well, not as much tool making. We made tongs and stuff in classes and stuff like that. But we were doing, there was a lot of kind of traditional blacksmithing stuff. There was a lot of Uri Hoffi stuff, Fred Chris stuff. It was not, there was no bladesmithing whatsoever. And then after I left, the lead guy, John Ledford, who's still a good friend of mine, who's like my mentor, this guy's an awesome blacksmith, awesome fabricator. He was teaching, having classes taught, and he asked me if I would help assist. I said, sure, I'll come. Yeah, I thought I was going to turn on the forges. You know, I wasn't going to do anything. And Matt Paul, I think you know Matt Paul. Yes. Matt Paul was there, and he was in teaching knife making class. And I thought to myself, ah, you know, as a blacksmith for all these years, who gives a shit about making knives? It doesn't really matter to me. He was teaching knife making. It was so fascinating. And one of the, the first knife maker's name I heard, it was yours. He was forging. We were forging these little knives. And he, had, um, he was pulling down the heel. And he was explaining how you forge in a plunge line. And he said, you're going to find this part of the anvil. And you have to match your hammer up with that corner of the anvil. And then when you hit... You know, you hit, you know, one side and then you get the crease and then you move it to the other side. Same profile of the thing. And he says, I learned this from Nick Rossi. And that was the first knife making class I'd ever been to. Now we're talking like, 
I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that, maybe eight, 10 years ago. And your name has completely, I mean, in terms of bladesmithing and knife making teaching, your name comes off more than anybody else's. Well, you know, that's great to hear. And that really does sound like something that I would say. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's awesome. That's totally great. He had, he had a style. Matt Paul has this style, MP Knives. I, you know what he doesn't, I mean, he's not making knives anymore. He's got a job. This is an interesting story. I don't, Matt Paul is a, one of the smartest, interesting guys I know. He made his own tire hammer. He's just, one year he made a telescope. He made a telescope with like glass and refraction, refractory. I don't know what, I don't know how he did it. And he, I think he's got a job with this telescope company. Like, they offered him money because he just did such a good job. So he's out of the knife game. He's in the telescope game. You know, and, and I usually like, you know, I, I hate to not support people in, in their in their in their uh, their knife career, but that whole thing that he moved into was just so cool. Um, and I think he made the right choice going into going in the telescopes. You know, it just really is very cool to watch. Well, this whole game of getting into knife making or blacksmithing or getting into these kind of communities is so fascinating especially if you learn on your own he learned how to make a telescope on his own and he was some of his pictures if you follow him on uh, facebook he didn't do it much anymore he was taking these extraordinary close-up pictures of planets of planets he's a guy who's you know he built a tire hammer in the backyard and he's just you know making these bushcraft knives and he's just like a regular guy but he made this super duper high-powered telescope and it was just like you'd see the craters on the moon like super close it was incredible i just i feel like i feel like there is it is interesting seeing um and hearing from do-it-yourselfers yeah, it's 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 pretty cool, and, and you know, and, and and it seems like uh, knife makers in general and blacksmiths, like they tend to have very uh, varied interests, um, in in real kind of kind of nuanced interests, and and you know, uh, it it doesn't seem weird to me that someone would be into uh, you know, uh, like uh, telescope making and knife making. That seems like not something that would really raise my eyebrows, but it's just it's it's cool how that that sort of feeds into each other in a weird sort of way. Well, it's it there's like this. There's this fine tune. I mean, he was a he. I think a lot of makers in general find the satisfaction in 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 seeing the journey through. But I think a lot of them enjoy the journey. I mean, me, I like the journey. Like, I never want to get to the destination. Like, I really enjoy. Like, right now, I'm working on a project where the, I figured out a couple little kind of like efficiencies. And I don't. Want, that's all I want to talk about is the if these efficiencies, not the final product. But I would imagine for like a making a telescope, if you you can see some see what you're supposed to see at the end, that's the ultimate success. And the same thing with a knife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I, I, I can't picture with with telescopes. Uh, you know, that just seems like utterly baffling. But uh, but with knife making, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It really is all about process. For you as a teacher, like I said. I mean, and it isn't, I, I, I once, I want, I think I, when I had you on first, I wrote something about Nick Rossi and I wrote arguably the, one of the world's best. I got my, I got my, I got beat up a bit for saying arguably one of the best teachers <laughs> in the world. Like these guys were like, what do you mean arguably? It was like, I think they were from Australia too. I don't know what it was. Somebody didn't like that. I said, arguably you've, you've really kind of established, established yourself as a, as a, oh, I'm saying new school teacher because I feel like. The past 15 years has been a new renaissance in terms of the recreational teaching of 
industrial things. Uh, agreed. Totally agreed. How do you feel that it's changed? Are you noticing a uh, exponential change since you first started at the center at uh, at New England School of Metalwork? Um, it is totally different. Um, it is. Uh, it's. It's. Uh, you know. I. I can't. Uh, you know. I can't uh, overstate how much it's changed. Um, you know. It. It. It started from like maybe maybe you could run a class a year in knife making maybe you could run a class a year and, and that was, and, it, and if that filled, that was like a good get, you know, around, you know, you know, 2010, 2011, that was like a good get, like a, like a couple classes a year running with, with like six to eight people that, that wanted to learn how to make a knife. That was like, you know, awesome. And, and we were encouraged by that, uh, compared to, I mean, I don't know how many, you know, uh, I think, I think I've got like, like five or six workshops, you know, planned for this year. And, it, you know, it's looking like, you know, enrollment is great. Um, you know, you see, uh, interest from different demographics of people, uh, people that are inspired by like anime or people that are inspired by like, you know, just something like Game of Thrones or fantasy or anything like that. It's not, it's not the usual, you know, well, I, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up hunting or, you know, I grew up in like my, you know, my grandfather was a blacksmith. So I've always wanted to do this or, you know, like the, the, the people that are drawn to it are, are the, the, the widest variety of walks of life and, and interest that I've ever seen. Um, and that has, you know, that that's the biggest change in the last, the last 10, 15 years, I'd say. So you're getting a lot of fantasy and, 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 and anime guys, huh? I mean, yeah, yeah, just or just just people that that like their 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 cultural reference is that point or like Lord of the Rings or right. Game of Thrones or something like that. Like that. So, you know, you know, Vikings, like all these these sort of like pop culture like uh touchstones, you know. Um that, you know, it just it's just interesting. It's interesting to see what 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 uh draw people into it. Pop culture is so interesting, but also it's it's very tenuous. It's tenuous in terms of how we grow as society, and what I th I've been thinking of my uh, my friend Jesse Savage, he and I for uh, 12, ten years we've been talking about like what's the role of the modern day blacksmith. He and I have been posing that to different knife makers, different blacksmiths for for years on different podcasts, and it's just fascinating to hear what people say. We asked Jesse Sa Jesse James and he, on uh, the blacksmith pub, and I'm I don't you know I, don't, I think he just kind of grunted something i'm not 100 percent sure he even gave an answer but what what it was interesting is is like i've started to realize that because because i got into blacksmithing i was at the center for middle arts before facebook started and before there was a degree of any type of social media and the only way people knew about the classes at the center for middle arts at that point was through the abana magazine anvil's ring and it was still like very like quiet and wasn't you didn't really see what was going on. Then next thing you know, Forge and Fire comes out, and then social media kind of brings upon this kind of um, you know letting people see what that is. And it's 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 a very it's a mixed bag in terms of how you feel about it because part of it's just like yeah, some of the stuff's fake, but at the same time, it like it puts the the foot in the door for people to see what's going on and the possibilities that are around us. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I would say that I, I have come to accept the good things that have come from this, you know, whether it be a TV show or whether it be the internet, the good things that have come from, from this, from this exposure. I mean, you know, to have, 
have a craft have uh, a light shown on it and be more popular than it, it is than it has been in the last hundred years I, I mean I can't be mad about that I can't be mad about it you know, See, especially if if part of my part of my thing is is education but um, it's, it, it, but it's yeah. begrudging though right I mean you're kind of like you're kind of half you're just like you're kind of not a hundred percent happy that you have to accept it that it is a good thing. Uh, you know, I'm trying to like o overcome that that urge to be like uh, like like a gatekeeping music enthusiast with like a band that I like, right. you know. And I, you know, and I've I've grown a lot as a person, and I have to say that that you know it that that's definitely how it started. But I'm really trying to see, uh, you know, the the positive side of this of this being a cool, interesting thing that people want to do. Cause I, I know what it was like when everyone just thought it was really weird that I wanted to do this. And, you know, I say, well, I want to be a knife maker. And they'd look at me like I was stupid and, and be like, you know, you, you don't make knives. Like the knives come from a factory. So, you know, just even have any, any sort of cultural, like, uh, touchstones for that is, I don't know. I've, I've, I've sort of sat with my feelings about it and it's good. I would say. I think, you know, it's interesting because when I was younger too, I think that there was like, I was making stuff out of my dad's shop. He had a uh, bandsaw and he, he didn't want me, he, I wanted to make some, I wanted toy guns, but he wouldn't let me have guns in the house with toy guns. And he said to me, he's like, I'll teach you how to use these tools to make the guns. So I was making, he showed me how to use his, his equipment and he showed me how to use a bandsaw when I was like 13 or 12 or 13. And I was making, or 10 and 12, 13, and I was making guns and swords and stuff. And there was this time where it went from Saturday morning cartoons to no longer Saturday morning cartoons. And I was in the shop making these bullshit toys and stuff that was really, and it, and it became this idea of, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing itself, but it was how do you get a guy, you make it. And my friends used to say that he's just going to be some weird guy in the woods with a knife hunting squirrels or something like that. It was very much along the lines of, I was an outcast because I liked that idea of making. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say, uh, definitely, a, a a similar, a similar thing. You know, I was kind of exposed, uh, you know, you know, later in my high school life to, to metal shop. Um, and you know, it was a definitely, definitely like, you know, uh, uh, considered, uh, an off the beaten path thing to, to, to pursue. It still is. I mean, yeah, it still it, is. It is like if you, I had to, the only reason why I became a knife maker is I had to, I had to get it down and, show up to my wife with a wad of cash to say, here's what I'm doing and here's how it's been. You know, otherwise, if I just say, you know, I think I could be a knife maker someday. She just roll her eyes and think I was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, oh, totally. So I know you do a lot of teaching. I, I looked at your, 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 you have eight events coming up between hammer-ins, demonstrations and, and, and um, classes. And what I was, I've been thinking about a lot and I'm thinking a lot about I, my last two guests, Jason Knight and uh, Jordan Lamote. I was talking about the idea as of master bladesmiths. You just got your master bladesmith. Well, not just got you. You're, uh, you're not a newlywed anymore. You got a, just about a year into you. I feel as though that there's this idea that we're, well, you, you and, and, and a lot of these master bladesmiths and teachers in general are the conduit to generations. Um, taking the ideas of the past and, and thinking about the idea of what's the role of the modern day blacksmith. And I feel like it's this idea of just bringing it along with us through time. So we don't forget, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And I would, I would also say, uh, that we, um, or almost all of us are probably, 
um, you, you know, not exactly a realistic representation of what it was like to be a blacksmith in the industrial revolution or the pre-industrial revolution in, in the sense that, you know, we're not working in factories and in the sense that, you know, maybe some of the best bladesmiths in the world, like the ones that maybe, you know, were doing this in the late 1700s, uh, hated their jobs, you know, and, and it was a factory job for them. It was like the equivalent, you know, you know, of, of being, you know, of being like a, of like a, like a line worker or something like that. And, and I think that we, we, ha you know, we should, we should be humble in the sense that, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're not living like these guys really lived and we're not doing production work, you know, like, like these, these, these production bladesmiths from antiquity were really, are really doing it. So there's a, there, there's a romance that we apply to it, uh, that if you look at traditional crafts that I, I think may, may have been appreciated, uh, or it may, it may not, you know, it might've been just a, a way to make a buck as like a, as a skilled laborer who, you know, who did pretty well. So I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's interesting too, if you think about, I mean, I've talked to Andrew Alexander, who's an incredible mind in terms of the history of anvils, history of power hammers and that kind of machinery. It seems as though there was this very distinct time where blacksmithing became something that was that they were marketing to anvils and machinery towards. Part of it is because I'm convinced in talking to people, we talking to Jesse Savage and talking to Andrew and reading uh, that book, Anvils in America and stuff like that. There certainly was this case where anvils were marketed towards non-professional blacksmiths. And, if, and part of it is because if you look at the sizes, you know, a, a professional blacksmith, you know, is going to use like a 300-pound anvil or something like that, 300, maybe even more. But the fact that there's so many... 150 pound anvils in the United States and that they were marketed towards and then the, the, the London pattern anvil and then the anvils that, that of antiquity, you know, the 1800s, stuff like that, were kind of marketed towards um, farriers. You get the, and they're like, there's a, you know, there's so many of them in the 150 pound range that's movable. It makes you kind of wonder at what point was this kind of push for the blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and metalworking community to be like, okay, you can have this stuff at home. Yeah, you know, and I think that all of that, yeah, I mean, you know, you have that industrial revolution push that, you know, your average farmer could could own a little giant or own a, a power hammer or own, you know, an, own an anvil didn't have to, wasn't reliant upon like a local blacksmith to do their, their repairs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that, that sort of, uh, you know, you know, post-industrial revolution, you know, this stuff got cheaper and easier to get, um, you know, especially, especially here in the, in the, in the United States, you know? So I think that, you know, that was probably the first, the first generation of people in the shop. And maybe, you know, and I hear lots of stories here in the Northeast of, of agricultural, uh, you know, people working in agriculture that at the end of the day, like they might make a knife, like, like, oh, well, you know, my grandfather made, made a few knives. Like he mostly used his, his, 
his home or farm blacksmith setup for you know you know to keep to keep a farm going right um but you know for fun like you know i mean you know we all like to make stuff and fool around and 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 you know that i i hear a lot of stories about that especially locally here like just just people getting it getting it in their head to 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 make something you know with with tools that they they already have and and i think that that you know is kind of like uniquely american in a lot of a lot of ways to be like well you know i i you know i'm not gonna I'm not going to order a knife from Germany or, or, uh, or England. Like I'm just going to make one, you know, in my yard because I, you know, I already had the tool. So I'm just going to do that. And I think that's kind of a, a, a uniquely American thing. And I've, I've kind of got this theory that, uh, a lot of the, like the sort of modern ideas about a sole authorship, handmade knife made from start to finish actually started with the theater knives of, of world war two of, uh, of, of, you know, of, of like people being on a boat and having access to a machine shop and having access to scrap and maybe access to blades, um, making knives in their spare time. And, and this was a pretty common thing in world war two and like collecting theater knives as they're, as they're called like theater knives as in, uh, like a theater of war, not, you know, uh, on stage. Um, those, I, I, you know, I think that those coming back to the States and, and that sort of like, you know, cultural knowledge of like, oh, my dad made this knife or my grandfather made this knife, you know, fr from scratch. I think that that was like one of the first things, you know, in the, in the fifties and sixties that, that kind of led up to the sort of first Renaissance of the seventies of, of people wanting to make stuff from scratch by hand. Uh, I think that, that there's sort of like a, you know, a cultural point there as well. And the fact that knives are small enough that they're intimate. And I yes. say intimate isn't in like you wear them on your hip or you put them in your pocket or they're, they're attainable, not just monetarily, but size and, you know, you know, mental scope of appreciation of something small that you can hold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and that's the, that, that's a big thing. Cause like, as far as the blacksmithing side of things to, to work at the, the highest level of blacksmithing, like, you know, which I consider like making gates and stuff like that. Like you're not doing that in your garage. Like you need a full on full scale industrial setup to, to work at the highest levels of, of blacksmithing. But, you know, you can be the best knife maker in the world, you know, with just stuff that you could fit in a garage, you know? And I, I think that that's why knife making, especially, you know, has, has just taken off uh, so much in the last, the last 10 years. It's so approachable because it yeah. really is so little. It's a it's a very in, in the grand grand scheme of things. Obviously, you know you, it scales up based on what you're doing. But I mean, the basics of it is. I mean, it's primal. You know, it's primal of how easy you can have something. You can make something physically with your hands and some technique. I think that. I, I, I wonder, it's interesting because like, you know, I think about, you know, when you're talking about the, these kind of older guys who, you know, the old guys who are like, and they make a knife at night. I also think about like companies like Little Giant. Little Giant is a fascinating company because it was not considered the best of all the mechanical hammers. According to some experts, it was one of the worst of the mechanical hammers. And it, but it, but it, it ingrained itself in the metalworking community because of the name. I think it was like the first major like marketing campaign for like something like you say the name and you understand what it is. Little like, giant. It's gold. It is gold. I mean, it is like some dude like was just like, well, what should we call this? 
and they were just like, let's call it the little giant. Next thing you know, there's 25-pound little giant hammers all over the place. Yeah, marketing. And then, but it makes you realize is like all of a sudden there are these industrial, because it is, an, I mean, mechanical hammers are industrial equipment, whether you like it or not. They're terrifying. There's some of them like the flywheel and the arms are going and then things chattering and maybe it's not, it's like, it can be intense. They're tire hammers, especially are intense or, or not tire hammers, uh, mechanical hammers. The idea that you could start to kind of mentally prepare yourself that an industrial pursuit can be done recreationally. It's kind of new. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that that, that, you know, that comes from applying, you know, a, a romance to a time um, that, that maybe didn't exist during that time. Um, but, you know, we, we, we look back on it and we are, uh, you know, and it's, and it's just, you know, we're just charmed by this. We're just charmed by these, by these, by, by these pieces of equipment. And, and, you know, and they've, they've got such like such an aesthetic and, and things, you know, that time, you know, where, where, where you know, aesthetics were actually considered in making industrial parts. That was something that was that, that people cared about, you know, and, and, in in selling that. So, uh, yeah, it was just a really interesting time in history. Well, cars too. Yeah, I mean, there was a part. There was a part in time. And I know you're a big car guy. There was a part in time, part where cars were really like these beautiful objects, and the color was special, and the lines were special, and there was these hints of there's something about it that it was just like it wasn't practical as if as it was, you know, you would crave it. I mean, now you see these cars, and I, I drive when I drive around, I see some of the color of these cars. I'm just like, I don't know how they figured this color out. Champagne? Is this champagne? What is this? What is this? <laughs> what kind of? Who came up with this color? Why are these colors the colors of cars? This is like, it's like so boring. And I'm, I'm like, there was a. And I saw my kid. I'm, you know, she's learning how to drive. And I say there were times where where cars were really kind of cool. Like these are this, this. No, no offense to Acuras, but I mean, this is. I'm just thinking of something off the top of my head. But this isn't like you know. No one's getting, no one's gonna whistle wolf whistle when that thing drives by. No, no, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like most cars are like melted bars of soap at this point, and you know, and that that's fine. They're a lot, a lot better, you know, than they than they used to be in a lot of ways. But but yeah, as far as like that whole that whole soul thing, and of course I'm biased, but like you know the the whole uh, the whole Baudry power hammer thing, like they really are a piece of like Art Deco industrial pornography, like you know in in cast iron, and you know I I just uh, you know, they're just a, a beautiful thing to to behold. Nowadays, you start to see, and I, I I would say that the internet is or social media is something to help with all this. Is the amount of restoration that younger blacksmiths, and when I'm saying younger blacksmiths, under fifty is a younger blacksmith, right? Agreed. That that they're, you know, I see Will Stelter. You saw Will Stelter's big Baudry, and you have these beautiful hammers and and Salem Straub and Pat Quinn. They all have and and um, um, Chris Cash, they're re- restoring these hammers in this, probably not the way a guy in the 60s would. They're all being cleaned up and they're blackened and maybe the lettering is being put back on and there's like, there's this new reverence to the restoration of these hammers that makes you think like, you know what, maybe every, something good is happening. Something good is happening. Yeah, you know, isn't it just great that you can take like a hundred year old thing and just like breathe a little life into it and be all like yeah this is good for another hundred years you know i i I think that 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 permanence you know is something that you know kind of in this in this in this social media world we're all just drawn to 
I one of the first bladesmiths I met outside of my immediate, my immediate sphere was in I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I met uh, Isaiah Schroeder. I think you know Isaiah. Yeah. Oh yeah. N- nice guy. Great guy. The the shout out to shout out to uh, the Wisconsin knife makers. Those guys are awesome. Yeah, and they I, are. They I are. went to his first. I went to his the shop that he's got now, and it was he was he was in like construction. And he was he was uh, he had a a little giant all in parts, and they were in boxes. And he was slowly slowly taking the parts out and cleaning the parts. And he was like, this this will run one day. And it was like, I'm looking at this box. I'm just like, oh, my God, what a lot of work. This, is, this sounds terrible. But he got it up and running. And there was this, like, there was this real, and you know, Andrew Alexander making these old hammers go and kind of getting them the way they need to be. There is this, like, that's one of the things about social media that I love so much is because people, you, I hear people starting to mutter, I need a, I need a power hammer. I need a, and they're not even saying Ann Yang anymore. They're saying, I want a, I want a little giant. Or I want to get one of these, where can I get one of these old secondhand things I can have and have this piece of history in my own, you know, garage? It's weird. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and then it, it seems like now that people know that they, that, that they want that because of social media, it's, you know, allowed people, you know, like it's introducing people to things that they didn't even know existed, which I guess is the whole point of it, you know. And then, then it becomes good for guys like you who are established teachers because this is something I have this conversation with Pat Quinn about. You know, he he gets nervous because he knows how many people have An Yangs and power hammers and they're getting power hammers, but there isn't a lot of instruction. So what he what a lot of you know having guys like you and guys like Pat and and, and John John Williams and all these guys who are taking teaching these classes and showing you how to use these pieces of equipment so you don't hurt yourself. Because now all of a sudden it's just like everyone's got power hammers, but no one's ever taken a power hammer class, or few have. Yes, and and that's also you know a, a class that I think is really really important, and they're really uh yeah I mean uh, Center for Metal Arts accepted of course it's hard to find a power hammer class you know it's right. uh as far as having enough power hammers that you're not you're not jammed up and waiting for people it's uh it's it's a tough thing in infrastructure wise but if you're gonna be using a power hammer I mean I I was I was lucky enough to take a power hammer class with both uh, Toby Hickman R.I.P. and uh, um uh oh shoot i've kind of lost his lost his name in my mind um but uh steve parker steve parker you know another brilliant guy like i i really uh, uh you know th- those two classes on power hammers have has affected my career in such a positive way um i i cannot stress enough if you can take a power hammer class and you have a power hammer definitely do so but you're also your history is very reverential to to your teachers and your to, to your old school teachers and I see, you know, every time we've talked or I ha- I've heard you on other podcasts and, and you talk, you, you, you drop names of people who are your teachers or who you learn from. And they're, you know, there's something about that idea of the fact that you've been a student of so many of these important teachers and then you're just kind of like bringing their stories along. Yeah, you know, and that's, uh, that's really important to me because it has had such, a, you know, such an effect on my career. Um, and people being free with their knowledge and, and going out of their way to take time with me. Uh, it, it, it's been, it's been the difference between, between me making it in this world and not making it in this world. So I will, uh, I will, I will always, um, speak the praises of, of my, of my early instructors. The story, one of my favorite stories is yours of 
when you saw the knife from the knife maker Mud, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. Mud. Yeah, Sherrigan. Mud, Mud Sherrigan, yeah. The Mud Sherrigan story is really fascinating to me because that was almost like your first foray into knife making to a certain degree. Can yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and for, for people that, that have not heard this story before, uh, there's this there's this, this knife maker named Mud Sherrigan. Um, he uh, uh, has been making knives for you know, probably the last like 60 years. Uh, he just turned 90, 95, wow. uh, still cranking out knives. Um, I just, I just saw him a, a couple weeks ago and he, he probably makes the best rigging knives in the world. So he makes rigging knives specifically for, for, for working on, working on boats. And he was, he was the first professional knife maker, like someone that was, you know, kind of making a living at it, uh, that, that I met. Um, and you know, kind of his, his eye for detail, but you know, he's still sort of a production hand, hand making, you know, handmade knife maker. Like, you know, he, he has models, um, and they're consistent. They all look great. He's constantly improving, uh, constantly changing, you know, finding better ways to do things. And like, you know, talking about process, uh, like, you know, kind of realizing that it, you know, it's okay to change and change and update your designs. Uh, and, you know, in, as far as education, update your teaching style and update your process as you go like that, that that's kind of a part of the growth thing, whether it's knife making or teaching. That's interesting. One, tell me uh, how uh, that's too hard of a question, but when you talk about your teaching, when you start, I know that when you started teaching, uh, Derek Laser offered you, a, you know, a, a job teaching at the New England School of Metalwork right when it started out and you kind of like, you know, really learned on the job. Really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there really wasn't any, you know, any sort of model to look at. There was, there, there was, there was going to like Haywood community college or, you know, Texarkana for one of the ABS classes. But that was like, that was pretty far for me. Um, that was like a, a little bit further than I was willing to go. And that was a big mistake. Uh, not, not signing up for one of those classes early on in my career, I would say would be the, like, the biggest mistake of my career is not is not taking classes earlier. Um, but but as far as coming up with a model, it was almost kind of great because uh, there was there there was no one else no one else doing it. So you know the whatever way you're doing it, it's the right way because there's yeah. nothing else to compare it to. So and how did you as you were talking about growing as a, as a teacher? How do you feel that you've you're because when I really look at your body of work, I kind of separate you out as a teacher and as a knife maker. Because I, I tend to find myself having to, and, you know, this is just my interpretation. Don't, you know, don't kill me about it. But I, I feel like there's more of a sculptural aspect to you, the designs that you do. There's a lot of work that you have taken from history and existing things. And you've made yourself your own version of these things. And you kind of created your own style. And then there's these little sculptural things that we can talk about later that I think that are really kind of, they're very, they're points that, define some of your work maybe on an unconscious level how do you feel you changed as a teacher how did you develop as a teacher and how do you think you've changed over time well the knife making thing feeds the teaching thing um because it you know if you're if you're not approaching knife making really seriously like in in the sense that you know you're you're prolific and you're putting out a lot of work um then i think that you it's going to be a struggle to really get points across as as an instructor um just for the sense that having to make knives quickly makes you efficient and being efficient is is what's going to help you 
present ideas in the simplest way possible that makes the most amount of sense to the most amount of people. Um, so I think that, you know, like, yeah, like when I, when I have a show and I have to make 15 pairing knives, those little, those, the, the little things that save time and the little things that, that make you faster and better, you can pass those on to students. And there's no way that you can learn those things unless you're doing that work. So if you, you know, if you think you're going to be like a, like a, a, a dilettante knife maker and then be an instructor, I just don't think you're going to get there as far as like being a really, really effective instructor, at least, at least as far as, as knife making goes. Because teaching is really part of your, who you are. I mean, I, like I said, I looked at your, your list, you got eight, eight things going on this in the year, which is a lot. You're a lot of traveling, a lot of going around. I feel like teaching has become a very big part of your life. So it makes me think like, I was interesting that you said that the knife making feeds the teaching because I've done a little bit of teaching here and there over, over the few, over years. And I always feel like for me, the teaching helps me to be able to have a better understanding of what I'm doing because then I can, I have to figure out a way to express myself as simply and as easily as possible. So people can understand what you're doing. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it does that too. Yeah. <laughs> it does that too. Like, uh, it's hard for me to pick one of those. I would yeah. say that, uh, they, they definitely feed each other. Um, but, but that's a, that's also a very, a very good, good point. And I think that also for you, for your history, and I'm just, obviously I'm just analyzing. I mean, you started the teaching almost not too far off from when you first started making knives, right? Um, you know, I was about, I was like eight years into it or oh. nine years into it before I taught my first class. Oh, um, but you know, also like I have to say that, uh, being self-taught and kind of floundering mostly by yourself for seven or eight years, I've seen people now basically get what took me eight years to achieve, um, achieve the same thing in about like, uh, two and a half years, uh, with uh, the modern, um, you know, the modern, social media and educational thing. So, uh, you know, I consider those like dog years in, in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, if but that those makes are the, sense, those are the good years, the grinding years where you're just like, even though it gets very frustrating to be doing something over and over and over for a couple of years, then you realize I've been doing it wrong for those periods of time. I feel like that's kind of important too. You know, it, it's important. And, uh, I don't, uh, no, you know what? I totally regret it. I, I wish I wish I had I wish I had access to the education that 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 I had access to now. I, I you know, I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through all that. You know, I am not a mechanically inclined person, so I, I have to say that during those times it was pretty rough. It See, was pretty rough. I'm gonna I'm gonna debate you because I okay. feel like you wouldn't be you if you didn't have those those situations. Like I look at some of the things in your work and I've talked to knife makers from all over the world who have used some things that you've done and they're just like well nick does it and it looks good and i feel as though that you have kind of defined yourself in your knife making that you can look at no matter what kind of knife it is you know a nick rossi knife and you don't need to see that raised stamp you don't need to see that stamp which is a little bit it's not tight on the edge but it's enough that it raises that that spine out a little bit and it gives you this beautiful forged moment and i feel as though when i look at your work and i was wondered that this is something I, I thought about this morning depend and this is you know once again this is you know tell me if i'm wrong i feel as though with a lot of your knives whether it's the culinary knives or the outdoor knives 
there's almost these three, there's the three, it's like almost a conversation. Each knife as a sculpture, as a structure, as a piece of art is a, is a three-part conversation. The blade, the handle, and then the transition. I feel as though though those are three incredibly important parts that those three parts in your knives are talking to each other. Uh, well, I'm glad you see that because that's the thing that I just friggin' kill myself over. Like that, th- those are the things that I I I pay the most attention to, and I really care the most about. And like when it's not almost right, it just kills me. Um, so so yes, yes that. That's uh, that's really important, and you know I make super simple knives, you know, and in really su- making super simple knives is is good in a lot of ways because they're simple, but it's bad in a lot of ways because you only have so many elements, and if one of those three things is off, it really looks like dog shit, you know. So, but so, yeah. they but they look as though I mean they're 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 beautiful as the, when I look at all all of them as a whole, but I also see that they're the like I said, it's the three things that are always in your knives having a conversation. Well, like I look at the culinary knives, if you, the chef knives, the beautiful forged knives, and you keep the forge the forge finish on, and you have that raised Nick Rossi touch mark that 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 telltale sign that it was forged that hump. And then you have usually there'll be like a bolster, depending on what kind of bolster it is. You know, if it's an integral bolster, maybe you'll have a museum fit finish where there's the handle just kind of like proud of the integral bolster. Or if, even if it's not, you'll maybe you'll have a little red, like a little red, tiny little bolster in front of that in front of that handle. And then the handle kind of it's not straight out from the spine. It kind of perches up a little bit, cocks a little bit high. And I feel as though that there's this harmony with all three of these parts but there's that's kind of one of the things even like you made some of these i love it when you make these forged like mushroom knives or you're there and you'll have like there'll be this these little um, scrolls on the end and then you'll kick them over one on one side and one on the other and then there's there's definitely you those three things are just so nick rossi that yeah, sounds so you know, lame and, by the and, way i'm sorry i apologize oh no that's fine that's fine and i uh you know, and I guess that like, and that's the toughest thing about knife making is finding an an identifiable style. And the more the more you force it, I think of the times in my career of all, of all the knives that that I've I've like, oh, I want to do this style, or you know, I have this style in my mind. And and every time I tried to force it, it kind of uh, you know, it always fell a little flat. So uh, that's the toughest thing I've like giving people advice about about you know finding a style and finding something that's identifiable um which is you know can kind of make or break your your career if you want to if you want to do this professionally well but i mean i i think i even mentioned this to you before in terms of mud's knives like i feel like when i looked at his knives there's like a there's a a very robust quality to the handle a robust quality to the handle and i feel as though a lot of your handles are very robust uh, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's something that's a little, a little weird about my knives. Um, as far as handle design goes, I like them to look like they could have belonged on like a real tool that people actually use. Like, you know, the handle of a hammer, the handle of an ax or the handle of a draw knife, like something that someone really would hold in their hands all day long and use for, you know, an entire, an entire shift or something like that. You know, I, I, you know, I, I don't really get crazy with, you know, spacers and, and facets and stuff like that. Like I really, I want, I want it to look like my hammer handle is kind of what, 
what I, uh, you know, what, what I'm going for. Speaking of hammer handles, RIP to RIP to the hammer handle, huh? You know what? I'm, I usually make fun of people that get really nostalgic about tools and stuff like that. But I was a little sad that the handle of my, of, of like, you know, the famous black Mamba, um, you know, it's dead. It's dead. It needs a, it needs a new handle. Tell so, me uh, about when you, this hammer, your hammer, you've been using this hammer for years. Yes. Tell me about when you made this hammer. And it's a would you say it's a German style hammer or you know, it it, it is right out of the Schmieler book. Uh it's very like German style. Right. Um, you know, the the the, the cross peen is kinda of offset a little bit low, so it's a little bit colonial in that sense, you know. Um but it was a hammer I made uh, in a class with uh blacksmith Steve Ash um out of uh, out of New Hampshire um you know great super talented guy um and he was doing a hammer class and he had this hammer that I just loved and I was like I want to make one just like this and I got pretty close and you know it's a pretty light hammer it's like it's like uh two 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 and a quarter pounds you know it's not even two and a half I, you know I think I weighed it forever ago um, but it had a nice long handle and it, and it really kind of followed me throughout, you know, the higher points of my career up to this point. So it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done that, that hammer's been around with me. It's been around. So after all these years, the handle goes, yes, it's it, yeah. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm really struggling with it. I mean, I feel like I kind of have to make a knife. Um, and should I make a fancy knife or should I make like a regular, you know, like a regular, you know, user knife. I feel like that's maybe more in keeping with it, you know? Hammer handles are tough. Hammers and I think hammer, I love hammers. Like, I used to collect hammers. And frankly, the first hammer, her first blacksmith hammer I ever knew about was a Hoffy hammer because we were teaching these classes and we had all these Hoffy hammers and I didn't know anything better about it. And I just assumed that's this is it. And he gave me one talking about being um, uh, sentimental. He, he, they gave me one, and then he was making jokes. Ori Hoffi was making jokes because when I, he asked me my name, and I told him my name was Jeff, and he, his hard of hearing, and he couldn't hear me, and he thought I said the word Jifa. And what Jifa means in, in, in Hebrew is like sewage or garbage. Oh, no. And he would say, to me, he started laughing. He said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Jeff. He starts laughing. What's so funny? He's like, Jifa? I'm like, no, it's Jeff. And he goes, you know what Jifa is? And I'm just like, no, what's that? He's like, it's garbage on sewage. But it isn't though just garbage. It's like the best part of the garbage. It's like the <laughs> real best part of the sewage. So he took my hammer, hammer and he wrote to, to garbage. He wrote, you know, dear. I said, will you sign my hammer? He goes, yeah. And he wrote, you know, to sewer. To, to sewage, L love Uri Hoffi. And it's like, I was very, I was like, and when I, I, a friend of mine is Israeli, he looks, he's like, why is he calling you garbage? And I was like, ah, like, it's funny. And I got really sad when it all wore off, when the, when the, when the, you know, calling me garbage wore off. And I just was like, I tried to make new handles for other hammers. It's really, really hard to get it right. Exactly right. Y yes, yes, it is, and 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 I'm gonna be uh, taking very very careful measurements of this of this handle before I I cut it up, um because I you know it's pretty good and like over the years like I'd shave a little bit off of it and a little bit more off of it then a little bit more off of it and it's kind of like just right so yeah I'm gonna be taking de detailed measurements. That's one of the things that most people don't realize is that you you can do that when you get a hammer. Like I've I've learned from Fred Christ. 
he was the, one of the first guys. He was making his own hammers, and they were awesome, and they were, like, crazy looking. And he had these 45-degree cross peens, and I was just like, it was all forged, and it looked crazy, and he had this octagon hammer. And he, the hammer handle was octagon. And I was just like, what is going on there? And he's like, yeah, you know, you just, you know, fits in your hand nice. And I, I went to, I was all octagon all the time. And then I started to slowly, slowly shave it down and shave it down. And that kind of, to, I would think, I know what, for me, if it was my, if your hammer was my hammer, I'd be like, I got to figure something out. I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm never going to get it back to it feels normal and right in my hand. Yeah, you know, it is a it's it, it's a tough thing, uh, but you know, I, I think with the uh, you know modern modern measuring equipment, I think you can uh, you can get you can get pretty close. The hand knows though. The hand the hand knows. Yeah. The hand knows. Yeah. So take me back. Take me back. You were struggling for seven years. Not struggling. You were working on your own. What was the first class you took from a from a from a professional teacher? Oh well. Uh, so basically I got hired at the New England school of metalwork and, you know, I, I, I basically could forge, I could forge paddles that I would then grind knives out of at that point. Um, I was actually, a lot of people don't know this, but I was really like a stock removal maker. Um, you know, up to that point I would, I would use, I would use forging, but you know, it was kind of just a forge in the tapers and that was kind of like how, how I'd use it. It was a means to an end. Um, and the first class I technically took was with uh, a, a blacksmith in uh, in in Western Mass called Bob Compton, um, and he is uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, kind of an obscure master. I mean, he is truly a master. Um, and and I took a botanicals class with him, and that was a really like a really positive experience, uh, and it was really really fun. Uh, and but I would say the most formative experience uh was the next class i took which was two weeks after that um which was with you know i i and like i've told the story in other places before but with a certain british blacksmith that uh you know doesn't really like knife makers so much so i was coming to this class with limited blacksmithing abilities and i kind of was like the ultimate like knife maker guy that couldn't forge that well and I was like kind of treated as such. Um, and it really, it really made me very embarrassed. And so, you know, like, like, like anything, you know, like, like sort of, you know, embarrassment or feeling like you're not, you're not good enough. It's like a great motivator. And I was like, you know what? I, I had to get good at this. Um, that, that was really, uh, what, what sort of, you know, I, I, that, that's what made me want to forge you know, to, to be a real bladesmith. Um, but yeah, but there is this still there's, and it's not, I wouldn't say animosity is not the right word, but there's like a separation between a lot of blacksmiths and bladesmiths. And I know, I mean, I know a lot of blacksmiths who are just like, they don't make, they don't want to make knives. They don't, they don't, they don't. And I, and I, and I made the, I made the point, I was talking to Pat Quinn about this a number of years ago. And I was saying, it seems as though, Knife makers want to forge to, and show you what's inside the knife. And blacksmiths are far more interested on the outside. And he kind of misunderstood what I was saying. He's like, no, I care about what's on the inside because he was talking about how he moves the material and the, how the inside of the material moves with the outside. But it was the idea of like, I know so many blacksmiths are just like, I'm not grinding. I don't want to grind this off. I just forge this on. 
you know, I just made this texture the way it's supposed to be. Why would I want to take it away? And there was, I definitely noticed that there was this real disconnect, not disconnect, but, you know, difference between a lot of blacksmiths and bladesmiths. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that, and, you know, and I really get it because forging typically is such a small part of the knife making process. Like, what is it, like 20%? You know, I mean, even on my, like my most forged knives that have handles on them, it's maybe, maybe like 40% of the process is the actual forging part. So I, I get it in that sense. If you want to forge, like the forging is kind of like the fun part and it's right. over pretty quick. I mean, so I, I, I get that there are two really different things that use a process, you know, to achieve an end goal. Um, and also like, you know, people love knives and, you know, knife programs at blacksmithing events are hugely popular. So I could definitely see how there's a little, a little, like a little jealousy over this kind of like, you know, new, new hot thing that knife making kind of is, uh, you know, and I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. But the school thing still is, you know, the blacksmithing school, the recreational blacksmithing school is still relatively new. I still think it is. And, and it's, it's, there's, but there's like these old ideas that are just not approachable. Like people don't want to spend a weekend just making hooks. I mean, I'm sorry to say it. And I know that these fundamental classes are important, but it's not going to be the thing that get, it gets people to the door. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, being able to leave, leave a, a class with like a finished knife that you can go and use in the kitchen. I mean, that's some razzle dazzle right oh. there. Like people are just pumped, you know, and, and I get it. I, I totally get it. Well, I mean, but it's also like, I mean, I think I, th I feel as though I remember when uh, we were talking about, I was talking about how we had uh, Matt Paul teaching classes. John Ledford and I were coming up with the school. We called it Hudson River Ironworks. And it was really short lived just because of, you know, hit what he was doing and what I was doing. We were doing running railings. We were running railings through the shop and then we we're teaching classes and we had, you know, good knife makers. Well, we had Matt Paul and then we had sculptors coming in and we had, were doing these like weekend classes. But we had to really think about what kind of classes we're going to get people through the door. And then once you get them through the door, then you give them an opportunity to kind of keep going, you know. And it was like, I it was this interesting part of the idea of like the introductory class has got to have a lot of boom bang. And it's got to have like when you like you said, you leave, you either want like a full five gallon bucket full of stuff in there. Or something really, really special that you just didn't think you could make. Not to mention, you have two different types of students. You have one type of student like who is just doing this one, one and done. They just want to leave with the, a knife at the end of it. And they're people who are actually interested in doing this as a career. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even, even, just as, even just as a hobby. Um, right. You know, and, and, and I... I I value all those students the same level. Um, you know, I think that I think that someone who just wants to wants to take a class and like, you know, and be like, that was fun, you know, and just never do it again. Like, I think that's totally awesome. Like they're they're gonna go through the world looking at metal objects and looking at knives, uh, totally different. I mean, it just it just totally uh changes your point of view. Uh and, and you know, people take that with them. They yeah. take that with them. So I, I think that that's that that's important, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, forging to me has always been the physical manifestation of your mind with discipline and technique. Like it's a physical manifestation of like how clouded your mind can be or how clear your mind can be. 
Uh, yeah, it, it, it requires you to be 100% uh, focused and engaged uh, when, when when you're doing it. Um, and I, I think that especially, uh, I've, I've worked with a lot of veterans over the years and, and people who struggle with just having like a busy mind uh, find it uh, you know, particularly relaxing because it really does take all your concentration. Um, there's no, there's no room for anything else like you are you're fully engaged uh, and it, it really is a great a great break is know? there a class that you can think of a specific class that really was a special class for you to teach oh um i don't know all of them all of them well, i but got like I, one I, like with a particular uh, student or something that really kind of resonated with you to, to say i'm doing the right thing uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, the classes, the last couple classes at, at, at Peters Valley um, have been particularly magical uh, because it, it's been just a great combination of personalities and people from different walks of life in classes. Uh, and also, I have, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the person who manages the shop, uh, Anna Koplik, um, she's an oh, yeah. ar architectural blacksmith, like having someone that is a professional metalsmith to make sure that, that a class goes smoothly uh, is great, you know, and plus, like, she's just a super wonderful person, and I had the 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 best TA, Sean, there, and and so when you get a, a TA that is is just at the point where they're starting to really understand things like they've gone from that beginner point to that seasoned beginner point because they remember all of the little tips that you forget and i've been doing this for so long i mean there is stuff that like i take for granted so if you can have a, a magical ta that 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 can pick out the things that, that, that helped push them to the next level and it's still fresh in their minds. Like, wow, the, you know, this holding the hammer like this made a difference or, you know, hold using these tongs made a difference. Like, uh, that is really magic. So I would say the last two years at, at Peter's Valley have both been just, you know, as good as a workshop gets. And how has your transition been and you're on your th third year anniversary of your new shop? How has that transition been? Uh, it's been, it's been great. Uh, I've got great customers and really supportive people and uh, I, I can't complain, you know, people uh, are still, are still buying knives are still signing up for classes, you know, are still, are still supporting me. Um, and, you know, uh, being self-employed comes with all, all of the, all of the anxieties. Um, but it is, it is totally worth it to be able to, to wake up in the morning and, and, you know, and be all like, well, you know, it's up to me today. Like, right. you know, it's, uh, it's completely up to me. Like that is, that is really awesome. It's, it can be daunting for a lot of people, but at the same time, it's like, for me, I, I, I believe that it's like, it's the idea of the journey and I like the stresses of it all. And the parts that I like of the stresses, if I can overcome them, like, I think it's very, it builds confidence to be able to have something in front of you that it's like a kind of a hurdle. And if you can kind of overcome it and not be totally overwhelmed, that's makes you better. Yeah, I, I, I love it, especially when things seem like pretty dire and they really uh, come out great. You know, I, I you know, that that's that's uh, that that's pretty, pretty exciting. Speaking of dire. How has becoming a you you've you passed the master bladesmith, you're a master bladesmith. No one was surprised. P.S. How the leading up to it, how stressful was it? 
Um, I would say that stress-wise, I would say that Journeyman was worse for me. Really? I was really more torn up about Journeyman because you worry about the things that you can't see with, with, with Journeyman. And if you're, if you're throwing some stuff out there for Master, um, you know, if, if, you, if you can't see it, then then you're kind of hosed to, to begin with. So, uh, you know, really like the, just the confidence of knowing that it has to be pretty perfect uh, or it's just, you know, it's no good. You gotta, you gotta trash it. Like that's, that, that, uh, that, that makes life easier in the sense that it's not, you know, you know, it's not good enough. You know, it's not good enough. If you can see it, it's not good enough. Um, and that was a little, little bit more comforting in a way. I would say that as someone that does this for a living, uh, it was it was uh, financially difficult because it's like seven months of working on these knives. Or it took you know it took me took me seven months of doing it. Um, and you know I can't just I can't just work on these knives. Like right. I've got you know I've got a mortgage. I've got bills. So you know I'm trying to work on production stuff while I'm working on this other stuff. And doing that transition is is pretty hard. Um, and that is that is pretty stressful. Uh, so like you know getting the Getting the blade, like the coffers were pretty low at that point, um, and I was like, "Man, I really hope that this works out." Uh, you know, and it was fine, but you know, se- seven months of of working, you know, even like you know, thirty hours a week at something, it's a it's a it's a huge it's a huge financial outlay, basically. So, yeah, I I didn't even dawn on that's that's when you talk to a lot of master blades or people who are testing. You don't you don't think about the realities of how your you know your life as well. A lot of guys they have something going on or they've budgeted their time in order to do it. You don't hear about the struggles of like how do I get this designation plus I'm working for myself and if if it's not if I'm not working on knives that are going to be sold then it's problematic. Yeah, it it, it is. Uh it's uh it's it's really it's it's difficult to manage. It's difficult to manage. Um, I've talked to like Matt Parkinson, who is outstanding, and he's this, kind of in the same situation. Like, he was going to test a number of times, but like with COVID and with this and with his health, but also running this business, it became hard for him to kind of like be able to. And obviously, I mean, he's just extraordinary bladesmith and extraordinary mind and stuff like that. But there were these the, the obstacles that of reality got in the way of like him being able to test in the way you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean, and he, and he set up, you know, him, him and Matt and Matt Berry set up a new, a, you know, school in their, you know, in their shop. And you, you look at, you know, like, why am I not just running classes? Why do I care about this master Smith thing? Like, why is this a good use of my time? Um, and you know, you, you really like, it becomes tough to justify in those moments, you know, Super tough to justify, and then you think to yourself, I'm sh- I don't know if you thought about it, I'm sure you probably didn't, maybe I should be running sh- classes out of my shop, and then you realize how much work it is to do a class out of your shop, and it, the juice might not be worth the squeeze. It, it, it is, and, and, and I am going to be, uh, 2024, I'm going to be doing some, some, some small classes in, in my shop. Um, that's kind of, kind of where, where I want to go with this. Um, you know, just like small, intimate sort of, sort of things. Um, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of a direction that I, I want, I want to move in. Bring to, bring them to you. Well, and just people keep on bugging me about it. And right. so like, you know, if people just keep on asking, then like, I kind of like, why am I not doing this? Yeah, but you're this? like, but I mean, it's not like you dabble in teaching. I mean, you're like you're <laughs> the forefront of, of blade, of modern bladesmith teaching. 
I, I, yes, yeah, you know, and and I do I do enjoy enjoy traveling, uh, you know, and I think that. Uh, but you know, it's also, it's also hard on you and you're, you're out of the shop a lot and, and a lot of these craft schools, you know, it's, uh, it's tough, you know, you, you justify like, you know, what, what a nonprofit craft school can pay you versus like what you can do in your shop and you know, it's tough. But then you got to set the shop up. I remember back in the day when I was in charge of setting the shop up for the center for mental arts. It took a whole week. The cut list, the cut, the Uri Hoffi would send this cut list. It was like, it was two days of cuts. You oh know, my God, for like, I know. It was I for know. four, it was for four weeks of classes and I had to cut. The cut list was insanity, total insanity. And, and the getting the anvils right and making sure we had this. And obviously when you start the class and all of a sudden you're just like, well, where are the drifts? You can't be that. You got to have everything. And then you got to have, the, it, it's so much setup and so much cleanup. I just remember being exhausted just setting the classes up and taking them down. Well, and that's what people don't don't understand is is uh, you know you you need a full day before and a full day after to recover from a workshop at least at like least that, you know as far as you know the cleanup and prep and then as far as the like the the cleanup strike down you know switch over to back to production or whatever and i you know and, and tacking on those extra two days it's uh it's significant and then the running to cvs because you need chips and toilet paper and you gotta clean the bathroom and then you all of a sudden it, you're yeah. just like you like, well what if we don't have enough you know earplugs and you gotta make sure it's it's it became it became I had the opportunity to do. I've done some private classes here, but I did a ha- I did a couple of hammer ins here in my shop, and I'm just like I'm fucking tired. I can't. This is like it, it's fun, but it's like I'm not excited for it. I mean, no, you're wasted. You're wasted after it. Yeah, you know, and, and really, like just talking about it now is really like raising my blood pressure. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and giving no, no, I, I'm just yeah, yeah. But I got to make sure you keep your blood flowing. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so yes, that is that is a, a, a real consideration, and you know, I I I think that you know, of course. If you have a, a shop that you're teaching in, you know, you need dedicated student setups. Like you need a dedicated student anvil, student workstations, all that stuff. Um, you know, that and that's uh that that's gotta that's gotta happen. That's gotta be a part of it. Well that's what Matt and Matt did over at Dragon's Earth Forge. He created this beautiful room that's dedicated to teaching. He doesn't take stuff out of it, he doesn't put stuff in it, he doesn't decide I'm gonna the light is night. But I mean the the light is really nice, I'm gonna work in the student shop. He stays out of there and it's swept and clean until the next class because he knows he's just gonna screw it up. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice. It's so nice. Uh, but you know, I, I, I find it very interesting because I do believe that this is um, a kind of a golden age because it is this transition. And when I say age, I'm not I'm not saying the last ten years, I'm saying the last fifty years. Because if you talk about the idea of recreational forging, it's like, I mean, you've got companies like, you know, Brian House, is, his whole company now is making grinders and forges. The, the demand for grind, I don't understand how the grinder business stays in business just because there's so many people buying grinders. It's just like, well, how many grinders can you sell a person? You know, I, I get nervous. I used to call it grinder wars because in my mind, because I'm thinking, well, he's got, at some point, somebody's going to stop buying grinders, you know, but apparently it's not the case. Yeah, uh, apparently not because like, you know, I was, I was kind of pricing a new machine and like every, everyone's out, you know, six to eight weeks. So, uh, so yeah, apparently, apparently people are still buying grinders, but also it's kind of a new thing for like, for like fabrication shops and stuff like that to have a really nice two by 72. So I think metal workers in general are figuring out, uh, that belt sanders are like super handy tools. 
and the C, how CNC and how laser laser uh, plasma cutters and uh, CNC plasma cutters have have has been is revolutionizing shops. Like oh, the yeah. fact that all these companies now all they do is they they call up a laser shop to to cut out the plates and the parts they send the the, the plans and it's like, I mean it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's like heaven. It really is. You couldn't you couldn't start if you didn't have uh, laser uh, laser cutting uh, laser cutting water jet cutting. You couldn't start a a, a manufacturing business doing grinders. No, no, could, definitely not at this point. You couldn't. It's impossible. But it, so it's amazing. So there's this beautiful, and it makes it brings me back to I guess the conversation for me has always started with. Uh, we, you know, during the Uri Hoffy classes, he would say interesting things and he would, we would doing, he would talk, he would refer to all the well uh, forged parts as elements and he would talk about this. And then we would have these moments where he would say, if you're going to be a blacksmith or be in blacksmithing, you have to understand what is our role nowadays with construction. No one's using forged. Not that many people are using forged steel like they did back in the Art Deco days or the Samuel Yellen days. Those days are behind us. Now construction is glass and it's bronze and it's brushed stainless steel. What is the how or how can blacksmithing and metalworking and ornamental metalworking, not just fabrication, but ornamental metalworking, how can that grow the way it had before? And this is the kind of the question that I've been posing forever. Which is like, what's the role of the modern-day blacksmith, and how do we make sure that it doesn't go away? Well, you know, and I'm I'm kind of out, out of my depths because I don't really work um, work with you know, work in in uh, like architectural blacksmithing, and a lot of that, you know, you're dealing with designers, you're dealing with architects, you know, you're dealing with uh, with with concepts, and I I know. Uh, it is it is funny because everyone I know that does architectural blacksmithing uh, is totally busy um, is is booked out eight months in advance at least uh, so I don't know, people keep on ordering the stuff I guess like as, as far as I know um, you know it, it it seems that on that end of things there's still a place for for forged elements in either home decor or uh, you know public art or or, uh, you know, really nice, nice construction, high-end construction. So, you know, and it, and it seems to employ all my friends, uh, and they seem to be doing pretty well. So I, I guess, like, you know, it's still, it's still doing its play, it's still doing its thing. Um, you know, as far as, as far as, like, forging, you know, in the knife world, I mean, it's just, it's just so captivating. And I, I know that I'm known for my, for my forge work, um, and when I first started showing my work that, that did not have forged finish, it was like, you know, ground completely clean and stuff like that. Like no one really put it together that it was hand forged and like no one really believed me. Um, and the, the, these weren't knife enthusiasts that I was, that, that, that I was trying to sell to. And, and I, I really was like, you know, put off that I put so much work into this, this process. Um, and, and so that's what drove me to, to start making forge finish, uh, chef's knives. Just, just the, that, that sort of, uh. Um, that that desire to show the process in in how it's made and uh, there's just something that is compelling. There's some people like look at that finish and you explain it to them, and and, and it's just uh, you know a light bulb goes off. Um, whether they are you know knife enthusiasts or just regular people, people connect to it. But the regular people are are starting to come around to understand what it is. Oh yeah, yeah, and so. Uh, my 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 career has been based off of regular people. Like I, I've I've really focused more on, you know, people that just like nice things. Um, and where do these people shop? Where do they go? 
Um, yeah, and the, the, that, that has been the market that I've always pursued alongside with knife enthusiasts who already kind of have an idea what, what, what they're looking at, uh, and, and kind of like seeing the uninitiated to the knife world, seeing their reaction to handmade things is like the most fun part for me. Like putting out a bunch of forge knives at a craft show, you know, sometimes half the people have never, have never seen a forge knife in person. Um, and just seeing their reaction to it is just so much fun. It's just so much fun how, how people like, you know, how people respond to it. When you do the, the events that you, you put your knives out, what are the knives that get the most responsive? Not just knowing what it is, but like, oh, what is that for? Do you have anything that you make that it really kind of elicits a response? Uh, you know, I mean, you know, there, there's a... Uh, you know, I think for for me, it's it's materials. See how seeing how people respond to materials, uh, and and sometimes there will be a bunch of people that will respond positively to a material or a color or a texture. Um, but that'll be the knife that like, you know, sits on my table for like two or three craft shows, right. you know, but everyone talks about it, but like no one wants to buy it. Like, that's fine. You know, it all, you know, it, 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 get, it gets people talking to you, which is like the most, the most important thing, but like why people are drawn to it. Uh, you know, you know, what, what about the knives and that that's kind of nice. Cause like, you know, cause I make a lot of knives that are sort of similar in shape and size and being able to experiment with different materials and colors and textures and see how people respond to those specific colors and textures, I think is the most engaging part of it. Some of my, some, I, I mean, I, I don't even, I have such a list of some of my favorite knives that you've made. And to me, some of the most Inter- I say interesting. I don't. I really should come up with some better words than that. But I love the the forge knives that you did with the brass joinery, where it was a, it was like a skeletonized almost, but it was like a it was like the the for- the knife was forged and then the heel was and the tang was forged and then you've you made this these joint these this joint with a forged brass um, bottom part. So it was like this combination of brass and steel. And it was very it was it was very sculptural. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I've got like, you know, I, I just sat down one day and drew probably 15 of those. Um, and I, I've got them sitting around and I, I would love, I would love to do some more of them. Um, yeah, those are, those are really, really fun. And again, like a lot of that is very, like very Edgar Brandt, uh, yeah. you know, art deco, art deco inspired. So th- those are, those are really fun. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's just not enough hours in the day. It sounds like you don't have enough time, frankly. I feel like I feel like you, as uh, Howard Stern's mother says, you do too much. Uh, I I um I also think about. I wonder if you think that when you think about your work, do you have a sense of humor. There's clearly a sense of humor. There's like there are these moments that are just seem like you're just you know you're just kind of like not thumbing your nose, but you're being a little bit. You know, it's there are these funny moments in terms of all your work, whether it be color or decisions that you made, even the way your touch mark is. The touch mark where you have it close to the to the spine of the knife and it kind of bulges it out. I mean, that's this that's like a sense of humor. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there's a lot of like t- tongue in cheek stuff. Yeah. Uh, about about my work. Um, you know, and I, I yeah, I just like to I I like to have fun with it. It's me kind of kind of making a statement too. I, and I think I saw. I think I saw a post of yours. You you had written a list of classes that you could never teach or that you want to teach, or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I get all these, like, crazy ideas, like, uh, you know, like, I think of, like, in metal shop class, where I was, like, trying to make a throwing knife without, like, getting caught, and I was thinking, like, what if there was, like, a delinquent, like, metal shop class where you could make whatever you want, like, like, uh, you know, uh, throwing knives, and, uh, you know, like, uh, ninja stars, and, like, nunchucks, and, like, just stupid, you know, stupid stuff like that, like, all, all the stuff in high school that, that you wanted to make, so, yeah, that was, that, that was, that was one of them, and, like, making a survival knife, um, you know, with, like, a hollow handle, you know, just all of that, yeah, a lot of it's, like, sort of based on that, like, nostalgia stuff, you know, so I, I, I think that it would be fun, uh, to do classes like that, but I, I find that no one, signs up for those so it's always I, tough i think i think that there, it was such a great idea it is this idea of like the rascals club or the delinquents club and i, I mean it's just like i find it hard to believe that you'd have a hard time filling it i would have a harder time believing that you'd get your insurance company of the building to say it's okay because half that stuff's illegal anyway you know, well, at least <laughs> in new york it is but I mean, yeah yeah I love that. I love that you had this idea and it makes a lot of sense. It's like kind of pushing towards that period interest of, you know, what is knife making? And it's just like, let's just cut the shit. You want to make ninja stars. I understand. Let's make some ninja stars. I once had this opportunity. I thought about it uh, years ago. We were, John and I were talking about making classes and I said, you know, we could do a class. We make batarangs, we make batarangs, Batman batarangs. We sell every class. And we thought about it, but then all of a sudden, just like, ah, I don't want to say the word Batarang or write the word Batarang. I don't want DC Comics to give me <laughs> trouble or stuff like that. But, I mean, it's like, you know, it could, you know, it, you know people would pique their interest. I love the idea of the delinquent knife-making weekend or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, that just uh, that that just appeals to me. Like, I, I you know, I like Bali songs, yeah. I like Brass Knuckles, oh. and I like, I love all that. I love all that shit. So. You, do you, were you, when you were younger, were you into, like, comic books, or were you into, like, fantasy stuff, or? Oh, man, I was a 90s movie knife enthusiast. Like, uh, I'm talking, like, Cobra, yeah. I'm talking Rambo, I'm talking Predator, Dra you know, J Jack Crane, um, you know, commando, like all of those knives, uh, were just like impossibly cool for me. And that, that was really like, and then I looked at how much they cost and I was like, you know, Oh man, I'll bet you I could make that and it would be cheaper. Like that was like the first, like, you know, the first like impetus of like, man, maybe, maybe I could do this, you know, and it's not cheaper. I should have just bought a Jack Crane knife and saved my money. Um, but yeah. When I was a kid, I, uh, we had, I don't know how, I don't know if they still do these things, but they had these, uh, county fairs and they always would have a ring toss and the winners of the ring toss would get knives. Like, Oh yes. Yes. And I was always like my, you know, somebody would give me some money and I would just go straight for the ring toss where you win the knives. And I was always just like, how is this legal? But then I didn't, I didn't question it because I was like, you know, 13, 14. I'm like, I'm going straight for the knives. And I remember getting this, winning this Rambo hunting knife. And I was like, I, I they might get arrested. We handed it to me. And I was like, I might get arrested just bringing it home. Like I was so stupefied that I got, I won this Rambo knife. And I was like obsessed with it, obsessed with it. And you undo the top and there's the, the compass on the top. And then you had the fishing wire and you have your fishing line and your hooks and your, you know, your matches inside. And I was like, and then you had that little tiny stone at the front. What am I going to do with this? And it was this incredible nostalgia that I see in your knives, especially when you did that forged uh, survival knife. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely a big a big part of it. Uh, the whole like uh, uh, army navy surplus store aesthetic. Ugh. I mean, I just you know uh, in you know in in uh, N- knife magazines in the nineties were definitely like exploiting that aesthetic, and and I just like I just ate it up, and I'm still I'm still here for it. What if you give me the knives from nostalgia that you haven't made that you'd like to make? Oh gee, I mean, nobody says know, crawl. By the way, nobody ever says the crawl sword. Uh, you, you know, I never hear I, about the crawl sword. Yeah, you know, for me, it's like it's like really like like Bob Lum inspired or like Emerson inspired um, stuff like that. Uh, that that sort of like early tactical, uh, early tactical '90s stuff like that. Because that was like that was like you know. Uh, that that was what what I couldn't afford, and right. that I wanted really really bad. So like I I, I would, you know, and I I do sort of experiment with that more and more. But I'd love to have a little bit more time. Um, and you know, do, doing tactical folders, of course, you know, that's just like, you know, the 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 ultimate in '90s uh, cool guy stuff. What do you think it is about the folders that are so? You want one? Um, you know, it's because I you know the the whole mechanism thing. The whole mechanism thing, the fact they open, they close, they, you know, there's like the, the, the tactile snap. Um, yeah, folders are definitely something that I, I want to, I want to do more of. Like, that's like, that's like the number one thing that, that I really want to carve out more, more time to, to work on. To me, it's always been the, the intimacy of putting it in your pocket. Like, you yes. Put it with your wallet, your keys. Yes. A couple coins, and then you slip in a Victor Knox, you know, Swiss Army knife in your pocket, and you forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Until, uh, until you need it like that. Yeah. Being able to just to put it in your pocket and, and that is, uh, you know, cause like uh, here in Maine, you can wear a fixed blade knife literally anywhere in the state and it will not even raise an eyebrow. Uh, but that is not the case in most of the country or a lot of the country I've heard. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's nice to be able to have that sort of stealth thing and just put, you know, putting something sharp in your pocket. They call in New York city. If you have any, any knife with a clip that's in your pocket and you can see the clip if it's not a leather man you you might be heading to the tombs which is yeah they, they, they're they're very if it has to be, you can have uh, a, uh, a a slip joint folder or leather man but like all these guys you know they, these folding razor knives that all these carpenters and people were using people were getting like picked up in the subways from the police department the police department sees all those knives in, in new york city and they call it job security because they, they, it's a, it's a, it's an instant. It's instant. No yeah, assist. It, that it's it, that that's it's just so it's so crazy to think about it. It's just so uh, so so exploitative. Yeah, it's terrible. At what point? I want to. I I really hope that you do the delinquent class. I really think I really think that this delinquent weekend class. You got to come up with a good name, and you got to like the probably we're gonna make some nunchucks and we're gonna make some ninja stars and stuff like that. It's a fascinating. It's, you're like reliving this childhood fantasy and you're giving it to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're definitely going to have to like smoke cigarettes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Get pizza. Yeah. And, throw it in, and, and make ninja stars. Yeah. 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 That would be sweet. Is there, do you ever make swords or anything like that? Uh, it, it is my, it is my dream to make a sword. Um, and unfortunately I've had, uh, uh, a thing called like overhead for most of my knife making career. Right. So un- unfortunately, like it is my dream. It is my dream to make a sword. So I, I'm, I'm going to take a class with, with Peter Johnson 
at uh, at at Zach at Zach at Zach Jonas's at some point, and I am going to make a sword for real. That is like my my career dream that I've not had the time to pursue. There's a usually those classes like a murderer's row of like incredible knife makers at that class. Oh yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Do you think? How do you think being a, getting the master bladesmith designation has changed you? Um, I mean, it's definitely made me better. I mean, you know, you, you can't, yeah, you can't, you, you can't go through that and, and push yourself to, you know, to, to basically your very limits, um, and not get better. Uh, and that's the whole reason to do it. Um, I would say that, you know, it's an, it's an interesting conversation piece that shows and stuff like that. And like some people care, uh, most people don't. Um, so it is a, it is a personal you know, a, a, a personal thing for me. Um, it, it has uh, a little, little to do with, you know, the, the, the ins and out of my, of, of my business. Although, um, you know, uh, my parents are proud of me because like, they always like kind of hope that I would get like a graduate degree. So they kind of feel like this is sort of like the knife making version of that. So that's, uh, that, that's nice. Well, now when people are just being nice and they're referring to you as master bladesmith, because that's usually civilians call anybody who makes a knife, a master bladesmith. Now that, now that when they, when civilians call you master bladesmith, even if they don't mean that they know that you are, you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool. And like, definitely in the whole, like the whole educational side of thing is it's nice to, it's nice to have, just say that, you know, say that you're, that, that you're a master bladesmith. And I, and I, I had agreed to do a class and I got, I got my MS and like, and like, I got an email and they're like, well, are you going to be charging us more huh. now that you're a master? And I was like, no, are you kidding me? Um, yeah, so, so it is, it is kind of, you know, in, in that sense, it's kind of nice. I wish I was at the, I wish, I wish I was at the, at, at that school and they heard because you know, someone's be like, he's just got his master bladesmith. You better figure it out. He might be charging more. I would have been, <laughs> well, what do we do? We send him an email. I don't know, man. He, I'm telling you the, the rate just went up. I would have yeah. loved to have been in that, in that, in that meeting. We're like, Nick's about to show up and he just, oh, he just like leveled up. Maybe we better find out before he slips us a bill. It's yeah. a little bit different than what we originally agreed on. I know. Like, well, I'm going to need some more money yeah. now that I'm an MS. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Oh, that that's com- I, I, my favorite <laughs> conversations are always like the back office. Now, what do we do? Now yeah. what do we do? What, how do we broach this topic? And how do we broach the topic of like, are, are we going to pay this guy more? Oh, I would, the, the nervousness. It's so Larry David of just, I they see, I like the idea of being the Larry David of knife making. And that's where I kind of go <laughs> for. It's like these awkward conversations. Like, Oh God, we got to call up Nick and oh, he's going to raise the prices. And I hope he didn't think that he's going to raise the price. Now, what do we say? How do we broach the whole topic? Yeah. 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 I, I'm sure, I'm sure that that was a funny, a, a funny conversation, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty rude of me, I would say. Oh, but you know what? No, it would have been funny too. I might have, you know, might have been like, "Of course, are you kidding me? You know what the going rate is? Come on, man." <laughs> you know, like I definitely having having worked in the whole craft school education side of things, like I try to be really, really nice to all those people because it's like it's a rough business, you know. So I, I I always feel feel pretty bad about giving them a hard time. It's a rough business, you know. You're right; it's a rough business, and a lot of that rough business is because. They're people who have decided to go on their own in a field that isn't regulated. And you, 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 maybe you get ripped off here. Maybe you get ripped off there. And finally, when you get your due, maybe you want to, you know, some people probably are a little bit more rough in regards to, I deserve more. I deserve mine. You know what I mean? There's a lot of guys who cut their teeth and they feel like they're deserving of something. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that there that that you sometimes you sometimes get that um, you know, just uh, I think that you know, just be, being humble and kind of recognize you know recognizing like, you know, what 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 people have to go through to put on put on a class like goes goes a long way. I was thinking, you know, the knife making community is great. Is really great. It, it, you see you meet people, there everyone has been very Everyone with the you know a majority of people that I met in the knife making community be fantastic, and it is really interesting. But it reminded me of something as a kid, and I wanted to bring this up to you. I don't know why I want to bring this. It's funny. I, I thought about the idea of the knife making community, and the fervor of being involved in this community, and it reminded me of when I was a kid in New York City. We had basic cable, and basic cable was awesome because you didn't have a controller. You had this knob, and you did these clicks, and every click was a channel. And how old I am is that it wasn't even it wasn't even it was numbers one through thirteen. That was the first channels, and then the rest of the channels were letters. And then you'd flip through the letters, and then all of a sudden you'd roll up on public access, and you'd come up on public access was. These channels, like anybody could get a get a on public access, and then you'd see, you know, like that's what Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World came from. But sometimes you could get like a little bit of like rude stuff. Robin Bird, uh, shout out to anybody from New York who remembers who Robin Bird is. And then I stumbled upon the this this the creating their own community. It was pan. It was gold uh, panhandlers, not a panhandler, a gold. What's a gold. What's a person who panhandles for gold. Is that a panhandler? I think it's a panning gold, gold panning. Gold right? panning. Yeah. So there's this, there's this channel devoted to panning for gold. And these guys were telling you how to go to a stream and you get a sieve and we make sieves and you go to our, you, you, you write us a letter and we'll make you a sieve. And then how you sift, sift through these little streams to find gold. And they were talking about finding little pieces of gold and what you don't look for. I was riveted. And all I wanted to do was I know where some streams are. I can get us, I can write these guys a letter and they'll make me a sieve. And it, I got so crazy. And I remember, and I must have been like 13 or something. Like Everything seems to happen when I'm 13. I went up to my mother and was like, Mom, I'm going to be a gold prospector. And she says, what are you talking about? Like, I've been watching this show about how you find gold in streams. And we know where all these streams are. We're in all these. I'm going to be rich. And I just remember that it, was, it's, it felt as though that was the same thing of like getting into knife making because you're just like you learn a couple things i could i could get that anvil over there or i have an anvil for my grandfather i can figure out how to do this and all of a sudden i'm going to get rich and it was just this funny thing i i for some reason i i felt like there was this connection between the fervor of being a gold pan person and a knife maker or the beginning stages of knife making well, yeah, it's 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 almost like uh you know like a like a a veil gets lifted away. I mean, you probably never thought about gold panning in your life until 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 you saw that, and then it's like you know all of this like you know like uh, hidden knowledge that you then gain access to, and you're very very similar to knife making. Nick, I was on the 18th floor on 62nd and third, riveted to this guy sifting through rocks on a on this little stream in the Catskills. I was like. I can get to the Catskills and I can get to that stream and I know where I can get a sieve. I was like completely, I was convinced that this is going to be my job. I'm going to be a pan handler. I, I'm a gold pan handler, gold pan, whatever, you know? Well, you know, I'm sorry that it didn't work out. 
Well, I still know some streams, and I still know some. I mean, you know, if there's, I would, I, I wonder if there's a, if there's like a, pay, a gold rush community. I bet, I'm sure there is. You know what? I'm sure there is. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Maybe it's not too late. Uh, it might be too late. I, you know, <laughs> it might be too late. I, I think, I think that would be that would be the one thing my wife might just like turn her eye about, fall at me. So yeah, yeah. What's next? What's your? Do you have any projects you're working on that you're really excited about? Um, I mean, definitely uh, offering some some uh, some small workshops in my class, uh, 2024. Um, you know, basically I have to plan everything like two years ahead now. So that that that's something that that I definitely want to do. Um, I, you know, I have another class um a uh, a forged blacksmith folder class all shot and i just had to do the editing and i'm really realizing that maybe i'm going to have to actually find someone to help me with that stuff um yeah you know you know just like there's just not enough hours in the day and uh and and uh basically it's just it's just me kind of kind of figuring out you know what 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 i need to be doing to get to get more 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 stuff out to the people um you know, and uh, I mean, really, I, I feel like I feel like things are going are going pretty good. Um, and uh, and and I'm very I'm very encouraged. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of on 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 the right path in, in a lot of ways. So I think it's going to be much of a much of a of a continuation of kind of what you what you've seen from me uh, well, in the last the last couple of years. The vi- you can still buy the you can still get the online video courses from you, right? Which I think oh, yes. are fantastic. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. I have uh, I have a a, a, a chef's knife uh, start to finish class uh, in three parts that that's still available on on my website and uh, yep, that's uh, that that's still available. And that's that's nickrossyknives.com. That is correct. And is there a new knife style or something that you're planning on doing that you're you this is something you've never done before is there anything new coming up that you really kind of like feeling good about yeah yeah i've got like i don't i don't want to i don't want to say too much about it Go ahead. but i i've, I've kind of like this podcast don't worry i i know i know i but like I, i've kind of you know my my friend uh jason morrissey you might be familiar yeah. with his work of course um, you of know, course yep yep uh and uh and we we kind of we've been talking about doing sort of an educational collaboration type thing um so so i'm i'm hoping that that we uh that we can kind of move move forward with that a little bit um i've i've got i've got some some video ideas um that i think would really be fun um you know kind of uh uh an integral chef's knife study um basically that that would be something that i'd like to i'd like to play around with and having that be be an, an online like purchasable class uh because you know more people have presses and power hammers than like you know ever before it's crazy so i feel like it's kind of getting to that point where where the yeah like like we were talking about where the, the education on using those things um yeah there's enough people that own them that 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 is that that's a real demographic of people so that's something that i would like to i would like to do um, so, so yeah, I've got, you know, man, I've got so many ideas. I got like so many ideas. So, so. you need a, you need like a video editor or videographer. Yes. Yeah. I probably, I probably, I probably need both. Um, I, pro- I probably need both. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that 
I, I've got a pretty specific idea on like on like how I want things shot and the order I want things shot in, and I I think that I I, I would work pretty well with um, an experienced videographer. Um, but you know, I don't know. It's also tough because I'm really pretty picky about about how that stuff and i i i don't know yeah yeah i probably need i i need, I need professional help in that sense so i mean you, you now you put the bat signal out i, I, mean, I guess i put the bat signal out i guess i put the bat signal out the hardest part the hardest part and i ain't going to tell you what to do with your life the hardest part <laughs> about being in uh, a creative person on your own is kind of relinquishing a little bit of a little bit of it like I had to really relinquish a lot of creative control just because some things it's some things it's not worth this, the agita. Yes. I, I'm also slowly figuring this out, but I'm quite stubborn. So it's taking stubborn's okay. Than, stubborn's okay. Yeah. But it's just like at the, at the end of the world, you know, my, my motto these days is sometimes it just doesn't matter. Sometimes yes. it's like some of these little things that you worry about, it's, it don't matter. It's like, just get it done. <laughs> and and I, I tell you what, as far as I got your, I got your video, which I loved. I watched this awesome. And yours and Jason Knight's have been really, really, they've been really great. But we've been pushing them both um, on this podcast on a knife talk just because they really are great. And unfortunately, look, people can't go, like you said, when you were a kid, you couldn't go to, down to Texarkana or whatever it was to take the class you wish you could. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are in the same boat. They can't, I mean, I can't go away for whatever to do, to do the things I want to do. And it's just like, to be able to have that resource is nice. It, it is. And, and, you know, uh, usually when people take PTO and spend a lot of money, um, you know, usually people go on like vacations with their family to do things right. like, and, you know, to say like, okay, honey and kids, like I'm going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, to go basically like get, get, get abused in a, a really hot shop in New Jersey. Um, I, I'll, I'll see you in nine days. Um, that's kind of a hard sell and I totally get it. It's a hard sell. It's especially, it's a hard sell if you bring your loved one with you that doesn't want to be there. That's how, that's like, yes. I, have you seen that before? Have you ever had any students who bring their significant others and their significant others eyes are glazing over and they're like, why did I spend my time doing this? Uh, you know, mostly, uh, the, the, the classes where there are significant others, uh, you know, either a husband or wife attached, uh, usually I, you know, anyone that shows up for that is usually used to this, to that, to that sort of thing. So, uh, typically I would say that, that the significant other has, uh, you know, a lot of things planned to do during that time that they're, that their that their spouse or, or child is, uh, uh, is working away during the day. So, uh, so yeah, I do. I see that every once in a while. I once had a class and I'll leave you alone. I once had a class where a guy brought his girlfriend to take the class. Didn't really tell her what it was about. It was a forge class, forging oh. tongs or something like that. She was miserable from the beginning. She didn't really know. She didn't understand. She thought it was going to be like this kind of a date thing. And it was like, she was miserable, miserable, and ended up like going into the backseat of their car and going to sleep. Like she was miserable, Her hands hurt, didn't understand, and the boyfriend was not being like, all right, maybe this was too much, maybe we should go. He let her go to, go to the car and go for a nap. And he's like, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to finish these songs. I was just like, my man, it's over for you. It's over yeah. for you. This is a terrible decision. This is a terrible decision. So. Oh, that's that that's rough. That is totally rough. And, you know, it's not it's not for everyone. You know, it just isn't for everyone, and that's totally okay. You can tell people how to be good, but you can't make them good. There, Nick Rossi. I've heard of that. You know. All right, guys. Well, Nick Rossi, 
you're the best. You are the best. In terms of being the conduit to generations, you're the man. You're the guy who is taking information from the past. You're propelling it and making sure we have it in the future, and I'm appreciative that you're here. Well, thanks. You're going to give me a big head now. Well, it's fine. I mean, you know, no problem. I mean, no problem. Take it. I'm with you. <laughs> Guys, you know you know who this is. This is Nick Rossi. Nick Rossi Knives on Instagram and uh, NickRossiKnives.com. Go get yourself some of that real good, real good video from Nick and watch it. He, he's fun. He's fun on, on, on the internet. He's fun on Facebook. You don't, you don't mind saying how he feels and he's very good. And look, maybe someday he's going to have that delinquent class. I'm, I'm hoping for that ninja star nunchuck delinquent class. You got to come up with a good name for it, but I think you'll move it. Like you wouldn't even, you couldn't even believe it. Nice. Nick Rossi. Thank you so much guys. We're going to see you next week. And uh, thanks for your support. Thanks again, Nick. Thank you. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Makers.